0: i'm jonathan capehart and this is cape up one year ago today george floyd was killed under the knee of former minneapolis police officer Derek chauvin minnesota governor tim waltz appointed a special prosecutor who assembled a team that would succeed in convincing a jury to find chauvin guilty in the murder of george floyd That special prosecutor was Minnesota State Attorney General Keith Ellison. In this conversation recorded during a Washington Post Live event on May 21st, Ellison talks about the Floyd case, the Dante Wright case, and the need for Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. Hear it all right now. Attorney General Ellison, welcome to Washington Post Live. Great to be with you, Jonathan, thank you. Before we talk about the uh, Derek Chauvin trial and the killing of George Floyd, we have to talk about some breaking news that hit just about an hour ago. Um, your office released a statement acknowledging that you are taking on the prosecution of Kim Potter. She's the former Brooke, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota police officer um, who shot and killed Dante Wright on April 11th. Why are you taking on that prosecution?
1: Well, we've been asked to take on the case and we're willing to do it because we're public servants and when the public needs service, we step up to do the work we're called to do. Um, and so we're going to um, handle the case uh, with seriousness, with all due regard for the precious life of Dante Wright. Uh, and, you know, and we're going to seek justice and, and, and a fair trial. And let me just note for everybody, Kim Potter is presumed innocent.
0: Given that you were the the prosecutor in the Derek Chauvin trial, is that a template for how you will proceed against Kim Potter?
1: No, because every single case is unique. Cases are unique as fingerprints. All of them are different in many different ways. So we will, our approach will be tailored to the case itself. And um, I don't want anyone to expect that because we did one thing in one case, we're gonna do the same thing in another case. What people can expect is we will bring the same level of urgency and commitment and fairness and professionalism. After that, anything could be different.
0: And is there a likelihood or how likely is it that we'll see perhaps some of the team that was assembled for the Derek Chauvin trial be a part of the the Kim Potter trial?
1: It is very certain that some of our regular employees at the Attorney General's office will be on the matter. Uh, whether the team will shift from one case to another is really yet to be determined. But uh, I know that um, you know, more than just the Minnesota Attorney General's office has a thirst for justice. So uh, if and when we need to reach out, I, I expect we're going to have all the help we need.
0: I was asking that question because I was thinking of the people on your team, on the uh, on your team for the Chauvin trial, who volunteered their time yeah. and and their services. Certainly,
1: Jerry Blackwell, Steve Schleser, Neil Katyal, Lola Velasquez—they they were volunteers, special assistant attorney generals. They were fantastic, outstanding lawyers. Uh, but it's just not been determined as to what we will do uh, on the on the Potter case. So uh,
0: stay tuned. All right, let's turn our attention to um, what happened on may twenty fifth, 2020. Where were you when you heard the news of what happened to George Floyd?
1: How did you find I out? was um i was I was getting out of bed. You know, one of my uh, assistants uh, emailed me a, a video, said, "You must you have to see this. this is urgent." I clicked it on, I watched it, and even though I had seen far too much of that kind of thing, uh, I was still shocked. Uh, I asked my wife. I said, "Hey, hon, you got it? You know, do you want to see this?" Because it wasn't. It was, you know, in the. It was in the general. It wasn't proprietary. It was in the general ske- uh, flow of information. She said, "No, no, I don't." Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in a way, I understand exactly where she's coming from because it was just as shocking, although it was sadly
0: familiar. And that was the video that Darnella Frazier. Um, recorded on her phone, but as part of the prosecution, we all thought it was eight minutes and forty-six seconds. It was nine minutes and twenty-nine seconds. When putting the video to the video together, you understood why your wife didn't want to to view the video. But was it more shocking when you saw it in its totality, from all those angles that were presented at trial?
1: Yes. What was we showed at trial? has no place in decent society. It is inhumane, whether it's on the streets of Minneapolis or the streets of uh, Bogota or the streets of uh, you know, Moscow or, or Beijing. It is a human rights abuse, no doubt, and it should be shocking. Once it's not shocking, we have to examine our own humanity. It was shocking. And as you point out, Jonathan, it was worse than we thought. It wasn't 846, it was 929. It was worse than we thought. And um you know, still, I mean, uh, it, it still is disturbing to me. Although, you know, my, my makeup is one that I can look at things like that and deal with them, it still shocks me and
0: it's still
1: emotionally disturbing.
0: Would you have had the case that you had, had Darnella Frazier not recorded what happened? You
1: know, nobody really knows, but I kinda doubt it. I, I'll tell you, we constructed the case in a way that we didn't need the video. But of course we needed the video but we we acted as if we didn't and we asked ourselves what kind of case would we have if we only had live witnesses to put on and that's the case we put on and then we used the video to supplement that watching cases like well you know Walter Scott or even Rodney King we know that just you can't just win a win a conviction by pushing play on a video you've got to give proper context information insight perspective uh, the, and you could only get that from live live witnesses. And quite frankly, the emotion that the witnesses demonstrated and exuded throughout the testimony, in some ways, was more stunning than the than the video. I mean, to see uh, Mr. McMillan, 61 year old man, mm-hmm. cry on the witness stand. Tough guy, seen a lot, he was still in tears. So was a MMA fighter, 30 year old MMA fighter, tough kid, goes in the octagon to fight other people. And yet he was emotionally overwrought in there, a firefighter who runs in the burning building, you know, emotionally overwrought when she saw um, and had to relive that, that pivotal moment. So in many ways, we thought the video was indispensable, but we treated it like it wasn't, because we knew uh, we had to really humanize it and do much, much more than just play a video.
0: You know watching mr McMillan's testimony, I mean, my heart just went out to him because I looked at him and I saw uncles of right. mine. I saw I saw a member of my family up there on the stand. And then of course Courtney Ross, who, you know, the love she has had, still has for George Floyd, yep. just leapt through the screen before she even said a word. I want to stick with the video that Darnella Fraser took because one of the most important things it did, in addition to recording what happened, but it also revealed the lie that was put in the statement from the Minneapolis Police Department. And it seems to follow a pattern that we have seen of late. You mentioned Walter Scott. That was a situation where the police officers said one thing, the video said another thing. Uh, Laquan McDonald in Chicago, uh, where the police officer said one thing, but the video that in that in that case body cam video from the police officers showed a, another story. We're now talking about another situation that happened, I think, a year ago. Ronald Green in in yep. Louisiana statement said right. one thing. The horrific video shows something completely different. Why does this keep happening? Dishonesty, lies, the presumption that
1: people will believe me, because they always have. The idea that I'm above the law. I don't have to tell the truth. What I said is how it was. That is what's operational there. And my prayer, and I mean that, my prayer is that prosecutors and police officers all over the country will say no more. We will not have these people who don't obey the rule of law who don't honor the badge, we will not have them amongst us, and we're going to hold them accountable like we do anybody else. Somebody said, oh, Keith, you prosecute cops. I said, I do not prosecute cops. I prosecute criminals. And uh, it doesn't matter what uh, piece of metal they're wearing on their chest. If they break the law, they're going to have to be held accountable. And, and I just want to say to people in law enforcement, you know, you have a dignified, worthy, important profession. Don't let people be in your ranks who don't have the same commitment you do. You will be better off without them. And Jonathan, I just want to mention to you, there's a woman named Carrie O'Horn. Carrie O'Horn. She was a Buffalo Police Department officer. And she, 15 years ago, intervened when her colleague was beating somebody uh, in in excess of of, uh, what was legally authorized. She intervened to stop him. He punched her. You would think she'd get a letter of commendation for intervening. She got a dismissal notice and demotions and ended up getting her pension taken away from her. Thank God, some professors at Harvard said, let's take off the black professorial robes and put on our lawyer hats, and they won that woman's pension back. We need more carry horns. We need more officers willing to intervene. We need people like uh, Madeira Arredondo, the chief of police in Minneapolis, who took the mm-hmm. stand and said, what Derek Chauvin did
0: is unacceptable, not our values, and we will not have him amongst us i 'm glad you brought up the Police Chief, because I was going there in my next question to ask you how significant was it to not only have other police officers testify against Derek Chauvin, but to have the Chief of Police take the stand and testify against one of his own you know
1: it, it must have hurt him. I mean, he believes in what he's doing he's devoted his entire life to it. there's probably not one um rank in Minneapolis Police Department that Madeira Arredondo has not held, from patrolman to chief and everywhere in between. So it must have really broke his heart to see, you know, somebody who wears the badge with him do what Derek Chauvin did. But he obviously operates on a higher level of 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 ethics than just, hey, you know, uh, that's my boy, he wears blue. We're gonna look out for him. I mean, the bottom line is, Jonathan, if you knew where a reporter was making up stuff and lying just to do a story, you would say Get out of my profession as a lawyer. I find out somebody's ripping off clients and mistreating clients. I'm going to be the first to report them to the Board of Professional or Responsibility. We need to create a culture where police will say, I'm proud to be a law police officer, and I will not allow you to be shoulder by shoulder with me uh, when you treat people like that and you do crooked,
0: bad things. Derek Chauvin wasn't the only person there um, on that street, was it 38th in Chicago? In, yes. in South Minneapolis, he had there were three other officers there: um, Tao, King, and Lane. Their trial isn't expected to to kick off until March of 20, uh, 2022. What do justice and accountability look like in their trials? Well, because their
1: cases are pending, I'm a little nervous about speaking about them because I don't want the jury pool. To, to, to be tainted. I don't want anybody who's listening to this broadcast say, oh, well, I heard Ellison say they were this or that. Therefore, it must be true. So I must say this, Jonathan. We're going to hold them accountable for what we believe they are guilty of. I will remind everybody they have a right to remain. They have a, they have a right to be presumed innocent. And, and they have a right to make me prove them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Beyond that, I really can't say much, but I will mm-hmm. say that uh, the federal uh, charges, they have been indicted federally, meaning that they, uh, the federal government believes that they are responsible for violating the civil and human rights of George Floyd. They will be accountable in that parallel proceeding as well, uh, but they are presumed innocent in both state and federal courts, and but we intend to prosecute
0: vigorously. In the Derek Chauvin trial, there was a, a heart-stopping moment um when the judge he was angry about comments that were made by congresswoman Maxine Waters about what she hoped would come out of come out of the trial the 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 defense tried to get a mistrial declared because of it how concerned were you in that moment that a mistrial could be could be declared but then also Afterwards, where he said, You know, you could possibly get this conviction overturned. How concerned are you that Eric Nelson, uh, Chauvin's defense attorney, could succeed in getting that conviction overturned? Well, let
1: me tell you, there's only one way to handle uh, criminal prosecution, and that is with an extreme degree of concern about every detail of the case, even after you've gotten a conviction. You've got to continue to worry. But I'm not that worried, to tell you the truth, because I know that uh, Derek Chauvin got a very fair trial. I believe that, um, you know, that Maxine Waters has a First Amendment right to say whatever she wants to say, and she did. And the jurors remained committed to avoiding media, not letting anything influence them except for what came through this witness stand. They were very judicious and earnest in their oath and the commitment. So quite honestly, I'm not worried about it. I don't think it's a legitimate appeal issue, but there will be an appeal because there should be an appeal in every criminal case in America. There is a right to appeal, even if you plead guilty, you could appeal. So I'm not too worried about it. But um, you know, uh, you know, we're we're seriously going to defend the conviction, which uh, 12 Minnesotans came together and decided that Jer- Derek Chauvin was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt.
0: You know, unlike a lot of uh, black people in this country, I actually watched pretty much every minute of the trial. Just like your wife who couldn't bear to watch the video, lots of black people were like, I can't watch this trial, it is too hard. And I couldn't watch more than 10 seconds of the video because it was too hard. But with this trial, I'm watching, and as convincing as the case was, part of me was like, they're still gonna find Chauvin not guilty. And the one thing that gave me just a scintilla of hope that Chauvin would be declared guilty was the fact that the only time a police officer was convicted for the killing of of a civilian, an unarmed civilian, happened in the state of Minnesota. but what happened though was the police officer was black, and the victim was white. Were you surprised by the, ver- the by the chauvin um, verdict that it came out the way it that it came out the way it did? Or is that a signal between those two cases that actually justice does work? The emotion that registered with me probably was not surprise.
1: It was relief. Because honestly, honestly, Jonathan, I thought to myself, look, we've got to prove our case. We proved that the killing uh, occurred. We proved who did it. We proved that his actions are the thing that did it. We proved that he didn't have any legal right to do it. We proved it. We brought the witnesses forward. We set them up. We presented our case. We demolished their witnesses. And yet, there was still like, okay, we do know, uh, Walter Scott, we do know mm-hmm. that some cases never even make it to a trial. Eric Garner's case never made it to trial. You know, so many never even get to be in front of a jury, and so those are the things that made me worry. I knew that history was on uh, Derek Shelvin's side; history was right. on his side, and and so we, so I was, I was, I wasn't really surprised at the verdict because I felt we, we did everything you supposed to do. But I, all, but I also know history, so I was relieved when the verdict came out. And I will tell you, my my heart was uh, bumping out of my chest when I got in that courtroom. I, I was, uh, I, I was, you know, I think I was uh, nervous <laughs> about it. I was a little <laughs> anxious about it, but I also believed, and, and I'll tell you this, I, I never, uh, I was asked, when did you know you were gonna win? And I said, well, when the verdicts were read, but I kind of felt like after the case we put on, how do they come back within 24 hours and acquit? It would take longer than that to hang the jury, and so I just kind of knew we didn't have any big gaping holes in the case,
0: and so I thought that the quick verdict was a good sign. You were not alone. Uh, you were in the courtroom um, with with your heart pounding in your chest. America was ha- waiting, hanging on every word. Now let's um, talk about what's going on as a result of the murder of George Floyd and the guilty verdict uh, for Derek Chauvin, and that is. Momentum to getting the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed through Congress. It passed the House. Negotiations yep. are happening now in the Senate. Um, Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina is leading the negotiations on behalf of the Republicans. Do you think there's a bipartisan compromise here that could make it possible for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to become law? Absolutely, there is.
1: The bill needs to be passed. I got to switch jobs, Jonathan. You know. Here's what I'll say. There's a lot of good things in that bill. Uh, It prohibits state, federal, and local enforcement from racial, religious profiling. It requires training on racial, religious, and discriminatory profiling. It requires data collection. It limits uh, the transfer of military-grade equipment. It deals with the issue of holding police officers accountable. It, It does a lot of good things, and we could list those things. I urge people listening to go check out the George Floyd Justice Policing Act. But here's what I will say. And I know a lot of my friends are gonna be annoyed with me, but I'm gonna say it because I think it's true. Look, a lot of activists who poured their heart and soul into the Civil Rights Act of 1964 were really pissed because voting was not in there and housing was not in there. But by 65, they get voting, and by 68, you get housing. And in 65, we also got a civil rights bill on immigration, allowing brown people to come to America. What I'm saying is to my fellow Democrats is don't don't throw in the towel, fight, 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 and a good bill is better than no bill. A good bill may require some compromise, and it's still good even if it's not perfect. It's still good if it's not 100%. So that's what I want to say.
0: I think the phrase you're looking for is don't make perfect the enemy of the good. That's the one. (laughs) And so then, Is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act still a good bill and worthy of passage if qualified immunity is not a part of it? And that gets to the police accountability part that you were talking about that's in the bill. So look,
1: I want Cory Booker and Karen Bass to fight like hell. I want Tim Scott to go back to his colleagues and say, we gotta pass this even if qualified immunity is in it. But don't let the bill die over an item that we can come back for later. Get it, get the relief. I mean, look, there are literally millions of families across this country who will, will, their loved ones will be saved, their lives will be saved because of this bill. If you don't pass anything, then what did George Floyd die for? I mean, I think that we've got to uh, make sure that we get a good product out. Now I do I will tell you having spent 12 years in Congress, there's a price at which it's just too watered down. I, I don't think the absence of qualified immunity is that. Uh I think that if we can get everything except that, I say pass it. Uh and then don't quit and keep going. That's that's what I say. And look, some of my friends are gonna get mad at me but for saying these things, but I but I'm not telling them to not fight and I'm not telling them to get everything they can. Get everything you can. But at the same time, remember, you know, uh, if you can't
0: get the whole loaf, get 99% of it. Wait, Attorney General Ellison, just so that I'm clear, if qualified immunity is not in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, and that's the one thing that could be done to get it passed, you say, Democrats, vote for it, pass it, get it done. And then yes, I'm I do say yes. that. I say it. And then I the do people- say it. And then the second piece of it is because maybe it doesn't have to go that far because one of the things that's been on the table is for qualified immunity, only stripping it away from the individual police officer and making it possible for people to sue police departments as a way of uh, holding police accountable for their actions. Is that a worthwhile compromise?
1: I think that I think it is now. I think that we should get rid of qualified immunity. I think it's a bad doctrine. Uh, it no no legislature ever passed it. It's it's sort of a court doctrine, and and it's a shield for a police officers' bad conduct. And it's, so I think it's a bad bad business. But let me tell you, get that bill through, and if you can if you can get it through, if you can get it all through, get it all through. If you can get a modified version of qualified immunity, get that through. And if you but if and if you got to give up qualified immunity for now then get the rest of it through. But by all means, get something good out of this. And that's what I say. Of course, I'm not at the table, and it's a lot harder at the table than it is uh, on television commenting about it. So I'll just uh, defer to my good friends who know what they're doing and know much more about the negotiations than me.
0: Sure, but you also happen to be the attorney general for a state who just uh, successfully prosecuted one of the the, the biggest cases in the country. So your words do have a lot of weight. You said after Chauvin's guilty verdict, "quote We need true justice." That's not one case. That is a social transformation that says that nobody is beneath the law and no one is above it. What does such a societal transformation look like? You know, it, it looks like no officer is
1: going to put their loyalty to a colleague above their oath to the badge and the people who they are sworn to protect. It means that we begin the process of decarcerating uh, this massive number of people that we have behind bars right now. It means we put investments in preventing crime and in protecting life, uh, not just in you know, guns and jails and stuff. You know, it means we do some upstream investments. It means we deal with the social and economic determinants of who ends up in the criminal justice system. We say we're going to house the people, we do it. We say we're going to give the people health care and we do it. We make sure people are paid properly. We deal, we make sure the job, the government says, we're going to make sure we can do everything that you have a job, a jobs guarantee. These are the things we should do. I'm telling you, crime rates would plummet. Violent crime rates would plummet if you took out some of the desperation that so many communities across our country are dealing with.
0: I've got two questions and uh, and I'm going to ask both of these questions but just so you know, you're going to go overtime. Uh so tell whoever you're meeting with next that you're going to be late. But to hey, the point about You got to
1: wait. Sorry. Hart comes <laughs> first.
0: <laughs> so here's the question. You mentioned you mentioned violent crime and you know, violent crime is spiking in cities nationwide. How should police departments deal with the fears that come with that? Great question.
1: We need to, first of all, do community engagement and try to deal with community conflict and beef with trusted leaders who know the community. So you can say, look, there's a group in Minnesota called Mad Dads. Give Mad Dads the money to go into the neighborhood, build relationships where the hotspots are, and try to mediate some of these disputes before they turn deadly. That is one thing to do. The other thing to do is, is understand that bad police-community relations needs more violent crime. Think about this, Jonathan. If I won't call the police because I don't trust them, if I won't tell the police what I know about a killing or a shooting because I don't trust them, if I, if I just have no connection with them and believe that they're gonna bring more trouble than good, then I don't communicate with them. What happens to crime on the streets? It increases. People do bad things with no, with impunity. And whatever you allow to happen, probably more of it's going to happen. Police community trust stops violent crime. Therefore, police accountability is part of our crime prevention strategy because we need people to believe in the police and trust them. And that requires the police to treat people right. So those are just a few thoughts. Mm-hmm.
0: Attorney General Allison, I want to end. Um with this quote from Viola Fletcher. Um, She is the oldest living survivor of the Tulsa Race Massacre. She testified before Congress uh, this week, I believe it was yesterday or a couple days ago. Uh, and, And here's what she said, quote, our country may forget this history, but I cannot, I will not, and other survivors do not, and our descendants do not. I am 107 years old and have never seen justice. My question to you, Attorney General, is, is it possible to see justice if so many either don't see or outright ignore injustice?
1: No, it's not possible. We need more people to see injustice and to correct it. And what I will say is that there was a little girl whose name is Judea. I won't say her last name because she's a juvenile. She was nine years old when she witnessed Derek Chauvin murder George Floyd. Imagine that little girl 100 years from now testifying on what she had to live through and what she had to see. We need to make an earnest commitment, people of all colors, cultures, and faiths to to create equal justice in America. That job has to start now and we cannot turn away or turn back. History is watching us.
0: Minnesota State Attorney General Keith Ellison we are way out of time, but thank you so very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Jonathan. Keep up the great work. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of the Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.